Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Friday, June 30th, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for the 45th episode of The Hale Report is Mark Mills. A physicist by training, Mark P. Mills is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at the McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science at Northwestern University here in Chicago. He is also co-founding partner of the Montrose Lane Energy Tech Venture Fund. He previously served in the White House Science Office under President Reagan and was also an experimental physicist and development engineer in microprocessors and fiber optics. He's the co-author of the 2005 book, The Bottomless Well, which Bill Gates said was the only book I've ever seen that really explains energy. Like my previous guest, Daniel Jurgen, Mark is an expert in all things energy, but with a focus on the technology of energy and telecommunications. He is a first-rank iconoclast, whose opinions I highly value, as do many others. Welcome, Mark. So good to see you. Are you experiencing the haze in Maine that we are here in Chicago? Well, good to good to join you, Lyric, and thank you for having me on. And and no, we're not. Uh, we're experiencing sixty degree weather and some fog. But if one looks at the uh, globe weather global weather map, we see that characteristic that causes ice storms in North Texas. Uh, the jet stream has this very odd shape. It's pushing the Alberta and Quebec smoke down into the middle of the country and totally missing North Coastal Maine. So. We're, Where are you? And you're right next to Canada. That's we, not fair. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> and I am a Canadian. I'm not even getting to enjoy my homeland's export of, <laughs> of uh, ash and carbon dioxide being exhausted into the atmosphere, courtesy of nature's vicissitudes. <laughs> well, yesterday it was terrible. I went back to an N95 mask when I was outside. It, it was terrible, just terrible. But thank you so much for joining me. Um, today we're going to be discussing... Uh, your book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. And I think that's wonderful because we need some positive news and positive (laughs) outlooks. Yeah. Before um, we get started, I would like to tell our listeners a little bit more about you and also how we met originally. I was speaking, I think, two years ago about at the National Association of Business economists in Washington. And I thought before my talk that I would go and take in some of the other speakers' presentations, and especially about things I didn't know much about, uh, energy. So I kind of just wandered into your session, Mark. And the things that you said about electrification and electric vehicles were things I had never heard before. And I'm wondering, could you share some of the the points you made then two years ago, which are even more relevant today, I think. But you were the first person I heard, you know, flashing the yellow light. So this is like a genuine IQ test. I got to remember what I said at that conference. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably is similar to what I've been saying for years beforehand and years, years since. You know, I'm a, 
I'm a, uh, a technologist in a sense. I mean, I like technology and I like physics and I like politics. And I like it in the sense that it's important. <laughs> and, and I, as you know, spent a lot of my life now intersection of those three domains. And of course, that's where reality happens, right? We Politics if, influence everything. As Charles Krauthammer famously said, I think brilliantly said when he was alive, really miss him as an analyst and writer. And if you don't get the politics right, nothing else matters. And of course, he was referring to the obvious. You can Sovietize any economy, which Soviets did that in the 20th century and destroyed a great country. The people, of, the Russian people are great people, as we, as we all know. It's like the Chinese people I've met, like you, great people. Governments can destroy economies. So when I, when I talk then and I write about and talk about energy or technology in general, whether it's computing and communications or robots, drones, weapon systems, which I spent a lot of my early career in, or the thing that makes life possible, which is energy. I mean, but for energy, nothing exists. I mean, the not to be philosophical, but of course, everything in the universe exists at the intersection of three things, energy, materials, atoms, and what I call logic or information. The information embodied in a material's performance and what we understand about it is manipulated to build machines that use energy and produce energy. It's just the nature. That's true for humans and plant life. It's true for machines. So energy really matters. And I got involved in the energy domains a long time ago. And people say really silly things about energy. I mean, really, I mean, really smart people say really silly things. And so I've been more and more engaged. And I don't mean that in a in a uh, in assaulting way. It, they're just silly things. They just say things that aren't possible or that won't happen. So when I talk about the energy transition, the electrification of the economy, I've been an electrification bull since I've studied the energy domains decades ago. Electricity is a magical form of energy delivery, and it was a revolution in every sense when we figured out how to make it at scale. But it's very hard to electrify everything, and it's very difficult to make electricity in particular at scale inexpensively and reliably, because what matters the most in all, in all businesses in life is the delivery of energy, fuel and food, when we need it. Not when nature chooses to provide it, but when we need it as a society. And in a form that we can tolerate, that is, it's, it's constellation of impacts, environmental and other, you know, geopolitical, and at prices we can afford. And this is a very tough combination of things to, to do to deliver food and fuel to society. So we spent, we, society, humans, thousands of years trying to come up with ways to deliver food and fuel inexpensively, reliably, with minimal impact. Not, not no impact, minimal. So that's a long preamble as to what I usually deliver, like at the conference you're at, is that we have all this happy talk about we're undergoing this energy transition, a revolution. We're seeing exponential change in how we're going to deliver energy. All these silly hyperbolic words, which aren't reflected in the data. So what I usually do is just point out to people what the facts show that is, there's no exponential change going on in energy markets. It just isn't in the data. By that, I mean the change in the share of energy sources that are used to support society. And then I, subsequent to that, try to illustrate that the physics of energy, underlying physical principles, 
don't promise an exponential change. It's not possible. And by that, I mean two things. The not possible is that it is, in fact, impossible in the physics of energy. That is, storing electricity cheaply, expensively at the scale we store oil isn't possible with anything we know how to build. Period. Then, well, you know, I think that's where your training as a physicist really comes in. Because I think most people, when they're talking about that, they know very little about the physics of energy. And I think that's what gives you, you know, that's part of what gives you your unique perspective. And, you know, incidentally, I noticed that you went to Queens University, yes, where did. Elon Musk went yes. but he, <laughs> to school. He was much more successful. He quit before he graduated, went on to Stanford. I should have quit, too. <laughs> but, I, but I graduated from there. You, you, you muddled along, yeah. it sounds like. He did but, the right thing. <laughs> but uh, you both learned about that. But also, you know, I wonder if that that positive, you know, outlook has something to do with with some of your education as well. Yeah, it does. I mean, it has to do with my, I think also with, you know, you know this, we all know this, my upbringing and the nature of our parents collectively. And I was fortunate, you know, I grew up, my father was Royal Air Force, Royal Canadian Air Force. So we were middle class, we weren't wet, rich, we weren't poor. So I was lucky because I had the advantages of going to good schools, public schools in Canada, and then then in the United States. And you know, Queen's University is a terrific university. When I went there, it's, it, may, it may still be, I think it still is, one of the great physics undergraduate programs. I quit graduate school. Uh, and unlike, you know, Musk and others, I should have quit earlier and then started companies, but I had to figure out very late <laughs> in my career that the path to, to riches is to start companies, not work for them. <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, so I'm trying hard late, late in my life to, to engage in the practice of starting companies. But, uh, you know, optimism is funny. You know, as you know, I have a podcast called The Last Optimist, and the title uh, was accidental in the sense of Steve Forbes, who, you know, gave a sort of introductory lecture when I kicked off my book, which, as you say, is an optimistic book. And he said, half joking, well, here's Mark. He's probably the last optimist these days. (laughs) given Oh, that's where that came from. Yeah, and I said, well, that's, that's... you know, I'll take the label, but then, but then you have to, you have to define what it means to be an optimist. And so, my book is about technology, not about philosophy. It's not about politics. Uh, and as I explained in the introduction to it, it's, I, I recognize again to use Krautheimer's line: you have to get the politics right. They're extraordinarily important. The reason the United States has succeeded wildly beyond any other nation, arguably since the Roman Empire, I guess. Uh, is because of its political and cultural system, not just because it, technology, once invented, has the tragedy of the commons problem. Anybody can use it and do the same thing. It might take them a little while to figure out how good you are at it, but they can figure it out because once it's known, it's knowable, whether it's stolen or just figured out, right? So this is one of the challenges you have to answer is why did the United States succeed in the 20th century and what other countries didn't to get so much wealth expansion? And the answer can't just be technology. But as I write in my book, but for the technology, I mean, you do the thought experiment. If we had perfect governance, we all hug and get along. Nobody fights politically. We don't have wars. Um, Since the dawn of the creation of this great republic of the United States of America, if, if that had been intact, but there'd been no new technology, we would still be gentlemen and gentlewomen farmers uh, harvesting agriculture. We would have- That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. The, t- the thing, and 
Yeah, it's about convergence. Yeah. yeah. But you needed the yeah. system inside which technology would function. So what I what I asked in my book, it, it, in terms of the animating feature of what I was looking to write about, is what are the technologies that are now not theoretical across all the domains that matter, how we educate, how we create food and fuel, how we transport, how we manufacture. What, what is really new? What's different? And that's real, not theoretical, that's already being commercialized, but may not be widely used. What are those things? And those things are so exciting and so interesting and so and emergent that you ha- you would ha- you have to reach the conclusion when you finish looking at all these things to say, well, there's an extraordinary amount of wealth expansion and well-being potential still in play. Maybe, and as I claim, as much or more than was available for the expansion of the economy a century ago. We have as much potential to expand now. There's a, there are as big uh, change opportunities that are productivity driving, wealth creating, and comfort creating and convenience creating now is at any time in human history. Now, whether when they get unleashed or not, the roaring 2020s, certainly, let's just say the engineers and, and entrepreneurs have to develop technologies. You know, people, in fact, will be thinking, oh, Tesla is a technology that's revolutionary, which it isn't revolutionary in the sense people think. But whether or not Synthetic genomics really conquers diseases or whether or not 3D printing really matures in a way that makes magical machines possible. Those are often engineering challenges, of course, but once once they're shown to be possible. But whether they're unleashed as businesses, whether the companies can flourish and make them work, these are political opportunities and challenges because you can impede small business formation. You can make taxation and regulatory environments so onerous that businesses choose not to locate themselves here. Yeah, you know, a good example of that, of what you're talking about um, is in your book is this rule of threes and the uh, how cell phones became ubiquitous. There had to be three things that happened at the same time in order for that technology to take off. Well, you know, I developed this thesis of the rule of threes, although it's slightly artificial in a sense. It's not always three. Sometimes it's two. Sometimes it's four. But pretty commonly, it's three. That is, when you look at the invention of something, people look at the... We do this for all technologies. You know, the first car, the first cell phone, the first airplane, the first antibiotic. The first, you, know, you sort of think through the list of the first. And there's always a business, a company, or a person that's a, identified with the first because it's typically the first really successful um, or at the in terms of a, its point in history manifestation of the new invention they're never they're never really the first right there's there's a, always decade or two of predicate attempts to do the same thing the smartphone is the same for those of us a certain age we remember the palm pilot and the newton all right, uh, and they weren't alone. There were many attempts to make a smartphone. None of them succeeded. But it, w- the smartphone that, that that really launched the revolution, the iPhone, two thousand and seven, uh, that Steve Jobs was, is credited for imagining with his team, was not made. None of the things that made it possible were invented by Apple. It was the intersection of the invention of a small TV screen, the LCD screen which was invented entirely independent of Apple and entirely independent of the computing industry. 
And the, the battery too. The lithium, the lithium battery. battery was utterly essential because a lead acid battery, as we all know, we use that to power your smartphone. You'd have the, the remember the Gordon Gecko brick phone <laughs> in the movies, <laughs> right? Of Wall Street. Every phone would still look like that. And of course, the uh, I credit not the microprocessor per se to the smartphone because that had been around for a long time at that point, but to the chip size radio because your phone is a radio. And we all know wireless. It's not really a telephone. Exactly. It's not a telephone. Right. It's a radio phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that's as I say it, but making a radio, a, a fully functioning radio that's useful the size of a, of a fingernail, which is what it took, was an, also an independent invention. It had nothing to do with, with, with what uh, uh, Apple invented, none of them. But they, all three of them were technologies that matured roughly contemporaneously by by synergistic coincidence, if you like, the combination of those three made possible the smartphone. The same was true of the airplane. You needed the development of aluminum. You needed the development independently of the air derivative turbine, the engine. And you needed the development of the related domains of um, hydraulics and high, 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 high quality steel. You needed the, uh, ultimately the radio for communications. These things were totally independent inventions, unrelated to each other, in the, in the sense of the companies, the entrepreneurs. But when they were all available, you could make what we now see as a common ubiquitous airplane. That would be true of the Wright Brother airplane. They, you know, Most people don't know what the Wright Brothers did as they actually had, their insight was not that they made a light airframe. Everybody knew it had to be light. And they and they and people knew at that time what an airfoil wing should look like. They knew that too. That wasn't, that wasn't their, their, their insight. Their insight was they needed a very lightweight, internal combustion engine. And all the engines that were available to propel airplanes at that time were too heavy. So they actually designed and invented their own lightweight, high-performance internal combustion engine. They really were engine inventors more than airplane inventors. And the, but it was the combination of the three things, three domains of knowledge, that made it possible to build the very first airplane to do what they did. So, I, I mean, I, I trace that phenomenology, not just historically. I only spent part of a chapter on that, as you know. By use that framework to look at what's happening now. What are the what are the what are the contemporaneous inventions that follow the rule of threes and other domains? And of course, that's the whole point of the book is that I map that out as being we're on the cusp of revolutions in in many many domains from medicine, to education, transportation, and the transportation revolutions are not again using batteries instead of internal combustion engines to move cars. It's still a car. That's not revolutionary. But flying would be revolutionary. The, you know, the personal air taxi is, you know, the joke is, where's my flying car? It's been a joke since Henry Ford. Since the Jetsons. Yeah. Henry Ford <laughs> predicted a flying car was imminent in 19, uh, I think it was like 35 or 36. He set up the flying cars around the corner because airplanes were existed then. We had Air, we had airmail. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Except it turned out it's really hard. It needed a contemporaneous invention of several things. And now we just uh, are starting with the first flying cars. I think there was that pilot in California last week um, that happened. So the three things that you see now happening with this rules of th- the three things are the microprocessors, materials, and machines. And I'd love for you to go into to those three things. And I was very intrigued by something I had not heard of before. Actually, a concept created by a female economist, 
Carlotta Perez. Yeah. Um, I hadn't known, but now I'm looking into her work. But it's a, you say that we're now at a Perez eruption point, eruption with an I, yep. and the beginning of a new phase change. Um, so how are those three things, where are we now? And by the way, too, the figures in your book are fantastic. Thank it you. really helps to, for for me and for maybe for other people who are kind of visually inclined, really helps to understand some of the the deeper concepts that you're talking about. So, um, can you explain some of that to our listeners? Yeah, I think that the two words that you picked up on, you know, phase change and eruption, uh, are really important in terms of uh, understanding the. Uh, you know, this is the roadmap that I was trying to lay out in my book. And, it, you know, Carlotta Perez, uh, a Venezuelan economist, and, you know, uh, I'm not a, uh, a chauvinist or an inverse chauvinist. I'm, all, I'm just fascinated by the history, as I wrote in my book, of the emergence of equity and fair treatment of human beings, including women. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and 19, of course, we won't go into the deep history of that, but 1920s marked a, a turning point uh, there are chaotic times, which is why I chose the 2020s as my, uh, you know, mnemonic analog. The, uh, you know, women got the vote in 1920. There were two, there were two amendments to the U.S. Constitution in one year, which was tectonic politically. I mean, think about it, two, two, two amendments. One was, of course, to give women the vote. And the other was the uh, idiotic prohibition on a substance humans have been consuming since before written history alcohol, which was essential to survival because water would kill you through most of history. <laughs> so people drank beer and wine until we figured <laughs> From out. From Mesopotamian times. Yeah, yeah, no, but that's why, because, you know, it was it, it was sustenance, water. You can find fresh water. It was hard. We didn't know how to clean water until very recently. Anyway, so Carlotta, Carlotta Perez, you know, I came in my research about this whole idea of how technology goes through cycles, what are the cycles, and the cycles gives the impression of periodicity being regular, right? You know, like a 60-cycle wave. Nature, neither nature broadly, especially not humanity, goes through predictable cycles, but you go through cycles that are different durations, like, you know, commodity price cycles. When it's high, it goes low. When it's low, it goes high. I mean, it's sort of locked into the nature of commodity pricing, as you know better than most. But you don't know the periodicity. It might, the high price cycle could last a month and it might last years, depending on all these exogenous factors. But invariably, when prices are high, factors are, you know, you either kill demand because people can't afford whatever it is, or you get new supply because it's people pay a lot. It kills price. But anyhow, the patterns of technology, uh, and I have a chapter on patterns, fascinate me. And as I'm doing the research on patterns, I come across an unsung hero of this whole field, which is Carlota Perez, who's a woman uh, economist in Venezuelan, who had to leave Venezuela for reasons that are pretty obvious, especially these days. I think she's at Oxford now. And she wrote a, a, a wonderful short book on this, this issue. Of, uh, of technological revolutions and showed the kind of cycles that Gartner do is the hype cycle, but hers was much more, less PR related, more, more uh, uh, academic. And in fact, more thorough in my view. Gartner's is nice. I mean, no knock on Gartner. Hype cycle is a great word. And it's also true. People go through hypes of something prematurely, like the flying car. It's around the corner or, oh, I don't know, 3D printing, you know, because it's like, like Star Trek technology is going to change everything and there's not going to be any more factories anymore. Well, that was silly, but it took 
few years for the hype cycle to go away. But she she looked at the the, the patterns and what she would try to tease out was when the eruption, the degree of maturity in the new technology happened. And and uh, she saw that, like everything else, there are patterns. And what the pattern is, what Andy Grove wrote, he wrote a book about this as well, which I, I cite, that the idea of overnight, you know, the, the, the knee and the curve, the tipping point, the exponential change point when a product, whether it's a car, an airplane, or an app, just takes off, the exponential growth happens, is always preceded by a long period of, quote, overnight success, which is a decade or two of hard work on the part of engineers, entrepreneurs, and, and, uh, and businesses to make the product useful for people. And uh, the eruption, when you combine with the economist, Joel Moikier, who is a Northwestern University economist, who I wrote in my book, and I say every time I mention his name, He's a Nobel class economist. He should get, I hope he gets a Nobel Prize. He should get a Nobel Prize for his insights about the role of technology. His great book, The Lever of Riches, if your readers haven't read it, you know, find it, order it. He, all his books are good. They're all great. But Lever of Riches is a, a seminal exposition, exquisitely well-written, brilliant look at the, the lever of technology, the pun intended on his part, because the lever was the first technology invented, but possibly by man. So that insight on his part of what technology does to societies was to say, to steal a word from physics, phase change, and say when a technology is consequential, when it's really consequential, electrification, the invention of fire, the steam engine, the internal combustion engine, the antibiotic, so on, CRISPR, genomic engineering, they cause <clears throat> changes in societies that are not an acceleration of what exists, but a phase change. So all of us studied some science in high school. We know a phase change, what that is. Water becomes ice or water becomes steam. But a phase change, it's the same pro material. It's the same molecule, H2O. But ice and water or ice and steam are profoundly different. This phase change in the underlying stuff, when it goes through phase change, is really different. Heat posits correctly that you want to identify technologies that cause a phase change in the underlying structure that they're operating in. And there aren't many technologies that do that. And when they when they come along, obviously they're a big deal. It's a phase change in the structure of, of an economy and it impacts politics, it impacts economics, but he was focused on the phenomenology. I think, and the phase change, my, my adaptation uh, my theft of his idea, which I credit him with, of course. I, <laughs> then I it's I, not theft. <laughs> uh, intellectual property. It's an attribution. <laughs> it's an attribution. I quote him probably more than any other economist. Uh, he, I, I take his phase change idea and say that the phase changes occur at the intersection of the rule of threes. That when these three things happen, obviously the smartphone was a phase change on how we communicate with each other. It was a as big or a bigger deal than the desktop computer. We thought desktop computer was a big deal, and it was, putting a computer at everybody's desktop. But all of us know it's a much bigger deal to have a computer in your pocket to do to operate the way a smartphone operates. That has caused a phase change in social media, in commerce, because it's a computer that does not a computer. It's We don't use it as a phone, as you know. We use it as a bank, an ATM. We, it's a camera. So that, that construct if you apply it and think about it and look at the 
the structure of technologies that are emerging, you, you, you can predict, well, I think with some degree of accuracy, that these are phase changes that are going to happen because, again, another idea I stole from another great thinker, Peter Drucker, is because they've already happened. Predicting the future, which my book's about, is really hard. Everybody knows all the aphorisms of Yogi Berra. You know, it's hard to predict the future because it's in the future. And But you can predict things that have already happened, which is what Peter Drucker said. He, he stopped forecasting. He famously said uh, in an interview, I think, at Fortune magazine in the early 80s while he was still alive, they asked him about, he's a forecaster too, and he was a great management consultant, but he was also a philosopher, as you know, wrote, you know, he's still the godfather of understanding how businesses should run, in my view, because he emerged human psychology and behavior with, with Taylorism, the Yuan efficiency that he said, you have to recognize that humans are humans. He grew up in a family of psych, psych, psychiatrists and psychologists, as you know. He, he said he stopped predicting things after he wrote an, an, an article for, I think it was probably the Wall Street Journal, forget who he wrote it for, on the eve of the great stock market crash of 1929. He wrote, he wrote a, a forecast of what the stock market would do in the next year. <laughs> and he was, of course- And it was wrong, I'm assuming. <laughs> quite wrong. He didn't say there was going to be an epic crash. And he said, from that point in his life on, he decided he'd only predict things that already happened. And then everybody thought that was a joke. And what he meant was, he looked at things that have either high inertia, predicting the country will have more older people than younger people in the future, is locked into demographics. And it has economic and social consequence, right? So you want to think about things that have already happened, but are in early phases of already happening. And then use those as your framework for predicting. So that's what I, what I did. I took those three ideas, Carlota Perez's eruption, I'm looking for eruptions. Her eruptions would include things like new apps. Well, the app is not an eruption, but certain kinds of apps, like Twitter was a big deal. But that didn't change things the same way the smartphone did. So you have to pick, pick your class of eruptions. Then I took Moikir's phase change. I want to find things in that class that change underlying structures of businesses and society. And then I added to it Drucker's mantra that I want to only look for things that have already happened, not things that are aspirational. You know, we're struck by the clickbait where a scientist or an engineer invents something and the, the headline is, this changes everything because, well, good examples. The announcement of a, a significant advance in the physics of fusion got headlines last year that this changes everything. No, it doesn't. It changes nothing, except it's a really important advance in the physics understanding of fusion, but it changes nothing. The eruption didn't happen. The phase change is not there. And it, it doesn't belong in the pantheon of anything relevant to making any predictions of have any, any any salience for whether you're in business or politics or, or uh, investing. So you're using this framework then, and you're saying that the three things that we're, we're looking at right now that already exist are the microprocessors, right? The materials, and then the machines. So what are, how do you, do, what's in each of those categories? Okay, you're uh, you're right to drag me back to answering your question, Lyric. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought well, I was being subtle. <laughs> no, 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 you can be subtle. But no, it, it's really helpful to understand how you came to the to this. Yeah, and well, I think it's really helpful for for me and for others to to listen to the evolution of it. Yeah, the thinking on this because so then you have to dive into specific. But the macro framework is, in fact, that's my my contention is I think it's defensible that everything that exists in society 
as products and services. <clears throat> so I'm not talking about our, our democratic governance, how that came to be, or our law, legal system. But back to the thought experiment, all our wealth was created by, we have a framework in which side these technology revolutions have generated productivity and wealth. So people are wealthier and better off and healthier. So the 1920s boom, so the, the biggest expansion in the history of the human race of wealth took place between 1920 and 2000. I mean, there's a 700% increase in per capita wealth in real terms between 1920 and 2000. That's astonishing. And the rest of the world was dragged along because, in large, large part because of America. I'm not, I'm not trying to be jingoistic. Lots of countries played roles, but it was clearly an American propulsion. And that was because of the intersection of the three domains of things that matter to make every product and service possible, which is materials, machines, and information. You have to have a material to build a machine from to make the product or service. Materials matter. And you have to have machines that can not only manipulate the materials and find them, but also are built from the materials. And the information domain, of course, is how we... is. is interstitial to everything. We have to understand information in the sense of knowledge, but also information in the sense of communications, how we how we provide networks of commerce, how we share data, how we analyze nature. That's informational. And what happened in the 1920s is we had revolutions in each of those three spheres simultaneously. So in the material space in the 1920s, we had the maturation of chemicals, polymers. We knew how to make polymers. Up until that point, all of history had been Everything was built from natural materials, wood, leather, you know, stone, but nothing, you know, the metals we had were very limited and crude, uh, iron, iron ore, bronze age stuff, but nothing magical. The development of modern alloys of polymers and of pharmaceuticals, the three, three material classes, all matured in the 1920s, big deal. Simultaneously in the machine domain in the 1920s, and I'll analogize this to where we are today in a second, we had three simultaneous revolutions in machinery. We had, it wasn't that we had mass production. That was true. That was, but it was the machine, the automobile that matured at that time. The airplane matured at that time. And the electric power plant became an inexpensive uh, machine system that matured also in the 1920s. All essentially independent innovations and inventions uh, in different businesses that all happen simultaneously. In the third domain going on in the 1920s, again, same predicate, already invented but took decades to mature, was telephony. Telephones became useful and started to see ubiquity. The radio, radio is a big deal because it led ultimately to the smartphone. And of course, at that time, I add to that domain of information was the professionalization of science itself. Up until that point in history, Science was a uh, the pursuit of academics and dilettantes. It wasn't professionalized in any sense uh, that we understand it in modern terms. That all began the turn of the 19th to 20th century. Those things happened simultaneously, and that caused the phase change that we see as this great expansion of, of wealth. So then you, know, you, look, you fast forward a century later and say, okay, in those three domains, machines, materials, and information, microprocessors, what's going on? Well, in the information domain, we know the microprocessor is sort of the the new building block of everything that is informational, whether it's communications, whether it's AI, whether it's information storage. The microprocessor also gave us a digital camera. It get, all these things are so microprocessor-centric. We also had the, uh, the cloud, which we now, the predicate of the cloud was the internet, but the cloud itself is different than the internet. We had the cloud revolution beginning 
in the turn of the 21st century. And we also have the uh, development of, which is only, which, you know, it's interesting. I've had it in my book, as you know, I didn't have the word chat GPT because nobody knew the word hadn't been created with it. But I anticipated this because the first general purpose useful form of computing is artificial intelligence. It's a misnamed word, but what we think we know in the popular lexicon for AI is in fact the, the first time in history we've had the advent of general purpose utility computing. That is computers that we can interact with in natural language. Which is, it's large language models that are the big, difference. It's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about this in the book because it had already happened. The fact that we think it just happened with ChatGPT, of course, is the artifact of what I said before. There's always somebody that gets credit with being the catalyst in every technology product or service. You know, the first airline, the first yada, yada. Pan Am was the first international airline. Well, no, it wasn't, but they get credit because they expanded it. So that's the information domain. Those are Those are tectonic changes each in the, inside the, the sphere of information, and they all happen contemporaneously. In the machine domain now, we have something that's equally consequential as occurred in uh, a century ago. We have the advent of 3D printing becoming finally useful, which is consequential in ways. You know, 3D printing, to put it simplistically, is making machines uh, the way nature grows organic machines growing a machine as opposed to, which is what printing really is doing, as opposed to uh, fabricating the machine by cutting things up and taking things apart and drilling holes in things. A printer essentially grows a machine. This is a big deal because we can use printers to grow metal machines and, and this is not hypothetical, grow organic machines. There are 3D printers that print skin now and it is used clinically uh, rather for skin grafts. You can print Skin, who knew, right? This is a pretty amazing change. It's consequential. It's already happened. Is it ubiquitous? No. And the other sea change in machinery is a class of machinery that I just use the word autonomy uh, as the broad word, but that's robotics. Machines that can do things autonomously, uh, reacting to the environment. To say that's consequential it under, understates, the, under, understates the consequence of autonomy. So that's, that's all going on right now. And it's not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. And in the materials domain, we also have, just like in the 1920s, consequential contemporaneous tectonic shifts in the material spaces. That is, we are make, engineers now make things they call, quote, smart materials. Again, these are materials that react to the environment, self-heal, and do things not theoretically, but in fact, do things like I just described. They react to the environment. They, a material like that is clearly different than a static material, like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a piece of wood or, or granite. We're also now making classes of materials that I loosely, and it's called bioelectronics. These are uh, silicon electronics or versions of silicon that are biologically compatible, which to put simplistically means not only can I implant uh, sensors and smart machines in humans without having the body ejected, rejected, but I can do it but with biological compatibility. These materials can also be um, self-destroying, self-evaporating. I mean, it's really remarkable. You think about making something that amounts to a computer you can swallow that disassociates itself when it's finished doing its job into harmful, harmful, harmless rather components that you just excrete. I mean, cr crazy stuff, right? Crazy stuff. So how do we go from these crazy, fantastical, in some cases, 
ideas, these eruptions, um, to the next phase, which is ubiquity. Yeah. How does that happen? What is the agent? You know, I have a night-blooming cereus, which is a beautiful plant, and it blooms once or twice a year and um, for one night only. But w- some of the blooms never make it. You can, they, and others do. And it just kind of fascinates me, too. Some of these innovations, how, how do we get there? Is it because there are other, in, these, in this rule of three, there are other things that are happening that create that environment? So this sort of gets the, if you're an investor, if you're a forecaster, it's an interesting question. If you're an academic, it, it, it overlaps that, that sort of intellectual space. Why, how did it work? Why? Right. But if you're an investor, this is what you're looking for. You want to, if you're a venture investor, what you want to find, you will hope, you believe you're finding is the next eruption at a point in time where it's, it, it's going to become important enough that other people want, want it, need it. Other companies buy it or you become successful the way Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos became successful. You know, Bezos anticipated the cloud because he, in fact, they operate, Amazon operates the biggest infrastructure of the cloud in the world still. They're the number one. Well, it, it's an interesting problem philosophically and functionally because if you're a, a policymaker and you, and you believe this eruption, this new technology is important, you know, you, you every government, every politician wants to facilitate, accelerate, stimulate, right? Things that they think are important. And so how that happens, you know, does it, does it happen because the government hands out money, mandates things, you know, requires things, gives subsidies, changes tax law? I mean, the, the question, we know that question answers itself if you just ask the question about the car and the horse. Governments, governments didn't ban horse riding. In fact, I had a research this look up for me the answer to this question, is it illegal to ride a horse on, a, on the streets of America? Where, where is it illegal to ride a horse? The outright illegal. Well, you can get a permit to ride a horse anywhere you want, almost every, every, anywhere in the, in, the, uh, in the United States. The states that government didn't ban the horse and buggy. People bought cars because they were a better form of transportation. The eruption happened organically. Then the question, though, is who did it? How did that happen? What, you know... Which companies succeeded and failed? I'll use the car again because it's a good example. So the first 20 years of the automobile age, roughly roughly 1895 or changed to 1918, that 20-year period, there were 400, more than 400 different automobile companies came and went in the United States, more than 400. By some accounts, 600 or more. Uh, names nobody's ever heard of. Some people who were students of that history know they're like the Derea wagon was the first American car. Looked just like a wagon for a horse and buggy with a tiller <laughs> internal combustion engine. But there were car, lots of car companies. Uh, only a few ultimately succeeded, and, and many of them went away over time. But let's just say the 20s and 30s saw dozens of car companies from the advent of you know, Studebaker, which lasted much longer than others. So how do, how do, how do the people succeed succeed? And how do you pick that horse to ride? To, to use the obvious analogy, which, you know, have you picked the winner or loser? Uh, for investors, that's tough because a lot of people fail because they, they're they too early in the game. Uh, they have bad marketing, they have bad management, uh, they get unlucky, they're undercapitalized, all kinds of reasons. Or they, they just had the, wrong, they had the wrong design, that they had the right idea, but their product didn't catch on because it didn't work well. They didn't know how to build the manufacturing enterprise. So they failed on the supply chain side of what needs to go into the inputs for their product. 
dozens of reasons why they fail, right? Uh, the answer at, at the academic level is that the, those that succeed, the eruption happens when the technology co- constituents are all sufficiently mature to scale, which is a very interesting sub-engineering discipline. Do you, how do you know when the thing that people claim they're going to build can scale, build lots of it inexpensively, reliably? These are these are they're noble with a reasonable degree of accuracy by people who understand those individual domains, but they're different for each domain. In chemistry and mechanical engineering and computing, they're all the specifics are different, but the generic is the same. Can this thing be scaled uh, the way they, the innovator claims? <laughs> because everybody, they're not lying. They, this is not a Theranos question where I think there was a lot of wishful thinking going on. Wishful thinking based on good history. If you throw money at smart people at difficult problems, they often solve them, which I think is a sort of was essentially the operating philosophy of what was going on at Theranos. Set aside any illegality and stuff. I think that was the operational philosophy. Nothing wrong with that. That's what they did in the 1920s is what Silicon Valley still does. That's good. But why do some people succeed where others fail? And the, the short answer is it's usually a person. And in hindsight, we look at that person in hindsight, well, obviously Steve Jobs succeeded because look at his story. And there's book, books written about him now. It sure as hell wasn't obvious <laughs> to people in 1999 that Steve Jobs would, would make Apple the first $3 trillion company, right? That's what, no, it wasn't. What worries me about, you know, maybe a cloud on the horizon of this potentially wonderful scenario that you're talking about is that the United States is now talking about an industrial policy. Jake Sullivan recently made a speech, and it worries me, and I, I wonder if you share this, this concern, that the, that the government would pick the winners and losers rather than all these other factors in the marketplace. If they do that, are, are we becoming like China then, which is attempting to do that same thing? And will we be similarly unsuccessful? I want to circle back to China and microprocessors in a little bit too. Yeah, we should, but we should talk about that's important. We should talk about that. But it, it, does this concern you? Is this could this cause not, this not to happen if the government supports the wrong players? So we, we the answer is yes. I share the concern. I'm maybe even more worried about it than you. It's hard to know how our two brains work, but it alarms me. <laughs> it alarms me. I am. I'm deeply alarmed, very worried about the Sovietization. Now, this will be the Chinification of uh, industrial policy. So any honest historian that looked at, we'll just go, let's use history instead of the forecast of why the Soviet Union failed from 1918 to to year 2000. If you just measure it in terms of per capita wealth, all the other metrics that matter, it wasn't that they couldn't build great rock, rocket engines. They did. They built better rocket engines until recently than we did. They really did. They make great air. They make really incredible. Uh, uh, they make a lot of incredible things, but they did not succeed the way America succeeded, because they 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 Sovietized their economy. They picked winners and losers. They became a kleptocracy. And governments picking winners and losers, inherently, by definition, it's a kleptocracy. The nomenclature will win because they are, are in the circle of trust. Uh, and and it's that's in, in inevitably what happens when you start picking winners and losers. So what we have, a dangerous situation. I wrote a paper for the Manhattan Institute, uh, which is a derivative version on the answer to the question that you just raised, derivative from my book, I wrote only about industrial policy, raising the alarm bell that, it, that Republicans have joined Democrats 
in loving industrial policy now, a lot of them, and think that the only debate is no longer about whether or not we should have one, but who we should pick as the winners and losers. So to put it very simplistically, the Democrats would say the winners should be, we should pick windmills and solar panels and electric cars. The Republicans say we should pick, well, you know, uh, shale wells and, and hydraulic fracturing is the winners and LNG export. I don't want I want the government picking any winners and losers. It's an extremely dangerous slippery slope. And, you know, I, I'll tell you a story that I know is true because I was there at the time because um, it's instructive in terms of where we are today, where technology could take us. So when I was in the Reagan White House Science Office when I was a mere child. Me too. Yeah, exactly. I tell students I was in diapers still then because I don't want them to think I'm as old as I must be to work for Reagan. Uh, he, I was yeah, I was young. I was a 20-something. So we had, at that time, uh, that was... The computing revolution was in full swing. IBM had 60% market share in global mainframe computing. And the Japanese announced MITI, the, you know, the Minister of Trade, which so the, the Asian tiger then was Japan, not China. And they were out-competing us in cars, self-evidently at that time. Our car quality control was really terrible, infamously so. And uh, the Hondas and Toyotas were just better cars and eating our lunch, frankly, right? And uh, so... They launched a massive program in Japan. Uh, I think it was called the, um, something like the Leap Forward. It was a, a, a typical sort of Asian kind of construct, uh, the Great Leap Forward. I should remember the name of the, what the Japan called it. I apologize. I think it's in my book. But I forgot what they called it. So a ma massive, at that time, multi-hundred billion dollar effort in today's dollar terms to leapfrog the U.S. computing effort by the Japanese funding their industry to leapfrog American mainframe computing in mainframe computing. Okay, uh, Reagan, who was recently elected, was importuned. I wasn't in the meetings because they didn't let kids in the Reagan White House in the White in the in the Oval Office. The science advisor I worked for obviously was in the Oval Office, and he came back and told me what had happened in that meeting where they were being importuned by all the cabinet, but not Reagan's conservative cabinet were importuning Reagan to, to compete with China, to mount their own subsidies. This, the odious, what we're doing now was a Republican, a Republican <laughs> president this. was being told by Republican advisors to counter the Japanese subsidies with their own subsidies, which is exactly what we're doing today with China, countering subsidies with subsidies. And what Reagan, what I was told Reagan said, and I think others could vouch for this who were there, I wasn't there, but I was told in real time, is Reagan apparently looked around at his cabinet who were telling this commerce secretary, defense secretaries, we got, you know, we have to, this is critical technology. We have to, we have to compete with subsidies. He looked around the room, apparently said, well, interesting. Um, well, I don't, I don't know. He said, I don't know what the future holds for technology, especially for computers. I just don't know. But I do know one thing. None of you do either. <laughs> We're going to let the market function on this. And then he basically instructed sort of a, a, a more open exchange between government research and private research. That began the Cooperative Research and Development Agreement era. And of course, he also knew about Steve Jobs. I mean, remember, 19, in 1980s, there were Apple computers. And it was a very successful company making uh, computers that everybody thought were cute. And Reagan actually gave Steve Jobs an award, an Innovators Award, uh, in 19, I think it was 83 or 84. And it's a great photograph of him shaking his hands as a great American innovator. But he clearly had the, the right sniffer. He could smell something big was happening 
I'm talking about in terms of the structural change in the technologies with things like what Apple was doing. And he, he wanted to let the economy function. His view was, if you let this economy function, if we deregulate, so this would be a, a quiz for every conservative to answer. Has anybody ever cut the code of fed, federal regulations? The code of federal regulations are all the, the body of regulatory impositions in, in, in we put on to all businesses, which throw sand in the gears, sometimes for good purpose. The only president in, 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 since World War II has ever had an absolute cut in the volume of the Code of Federal Regulations with Reagan in the two Reagan terms. The absolute number of regulations went down. He demanded and forced, which was one of his three goals when he became president, is to cut the regulatory burdens on businesses, which they did. And they didn't destroy environmental regulations in terms of clean air and clear water. They wanted to cut regulations that impeded business functioning. That plus the tax cuts plus we'll call it a philosophical view of let, let innovators function, which is reflected up and down the food chain and how regulators operate, gave us the long boom. And, and Bush's term was the Reagan third term. And frankly, Clinton's two terms, as most historians would say, were essentially a continuation of, of Reagan uh, industrial policy. He, he, you know, Newt Gingrich uh, gave Clint, uh, Clinton a spanking in the midterms, first midterm. And Clinton was brilliant and essentially embracing what Gingrich was trying to accomplish and took credit for it. And good for him. He deserves credit for it, for, for embracing it. And so we ended up with that long boom that everybody writes about, where we got Silicon Valley, we got the internet. We, all that stuff that happened, happened because of that political philosophy of 1980 that lasted right through until the uh, Bush 43 election, which of course, Bush 43 was nothing like a Reagan conservative. It was a Republican, but it was nothing like a Reagan conservative. And we haven't had a Reagan conservative since. Well, you know, back to, to energy, what this made me think about, what you're talking about is there's a tremendous amount of funding now for green energy, both in the United States and in Europe. Is that another way of picking winners and losers? Should we be putting more money into making, for example, carbon fuel more efficient or less polluting? Or, you know, are we... Are we doing the right thing right now, do you think? Uh, we're, so we're doing the wrong thing on several fronts. The, the distortion of energy markets by massive subsidies. So the United States has spent about a half a trillion dollars in real dollars, probably a trillion in the last two, two decades in, 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 in uh, spending that's been required by mandates to avoid using hydrocarbons. But that's been the goal, stop using oil, gas, and coal. The effect of that has been to have essentially no change. We had a two percentage point decline in the dependence on hydrocarbons in 20 years, domestically and globally, in terms of the percentage of total energy supplied. Globally, we spent five to $10 trillion of mandate subsidies to avoid hydrocarbons, oil, gas, and coal. And that has also only reduced the share of hydrocarbon consumption by two percentage points. So think about five to $10 trillion is bought you two points. And the absolute consumption of oil, gas, and coal in those 20 years globally has gone up uh, in fact, in, in oil equivalent terms, the absolute consumption of hydrocarbons has increased by the equivalent of six Saudi Arabia's worth of oil production in the 20 years. So the flowing trillions of dollars into an energy market that structurally and inherently in the physics of energy can't compete with oil, gas, and coal, it won't make it magically compete economically at, at the fundamental level, oil, gas, and coal. It just distorts markets and feeds klepto kleptocrats and 
costs consumers money. And essentially, the, the essential feature, of course, of this is I, as I, you know, as a physicist, what I will say to you, there's no limit to energy. Energy is infinite in supply in the universe we live in, just period, full stop. No shortage of oil, gas, coal, sun, none of it. What we're short of is money. Money is the limited quantity because money is a reflection of the most precious resource in the universe, human time, right? That's what money really measures fundamentally. Is, is, is irreplaceable. Irreplaceable yeah. resource. Every hour of human life is never replaceable. And you want to maximize the benefit of, of every human life, both I mean, morally and theologically, but almost if you're an economist, that's what productivity means. So if you, if you, if you, decrease the inputs to get more outputs, you are preserving human hours. Everything about the stuff that's being subsidized moves in the opposite direction. It uses wind, solar, and batteries require more materials, more land, more money, more time and labor. So when the Biden administration says that these programs create jobs, he's right. It takes more labor to produce a unit of energy with wind, solar, and batteries, which is what we've been trying to avoid doing for 10,000 years. You know, what you were talking about in terms of money and energy, um, I wanted to ask you a question. I, You know, we've talked often, and I don't think I ever asked you what you thought of crypto. I asked Dan Jurgen yeah. this question, too, because it seems to me if energy is so precious, and that's what everything runs on, yeah. doesn't it kind of make sense to have a currency that also runs on energy? And and I think he was very thoughtful about that. And I don't think he had ever thought that through. But I wonder if you have any reaction to that. Well, so my thoughts on, on crypto uh, structurally are different than my thoughts about it in terms of what we'll call it monetary or, or policy or governments. I mean, I sort of share the view that the Fed, I was at a conference recently where I think I gave a lecture, I think it was called The Machinery of Money. So there, there were Fed, there was a Fed chairman and a Fed president gave a lecture before me. This was very really fascinating. Uh, we, we talked a lot about crypto, but what I, because I'm not an economist, I only play one uh, on TV and on podcasts. <laughs> uh, but I invade the territory. Like me, yeah, I, I invade territory <laughs> economists. But you know, I, I always say, you know, whatever the technology, follow the money. Follow the money. Don't, don't forget what the government's doing. Sub, follow the real money. Follow what it costs to do things, build things. Who? What does it really cost? Really cost. Fundamentally, at the fundamental engineering economics, and who gets the money? Follow the money. So you first you follow it into the underlying machinery, and then you follow into who gets the money when you, whether the subsidies and how doesn't matter. And when it comes to currency itself, one of the the, the Fed governor who was there said his answer about cryptocurrency was he said it's a it's a means of exchange, which is, he said more eloquently than I've said for a long time about crypto and Bitcoin. It's a means of exchange. As a means of exchange. Uh, blockchain networks, which are which are secure means of communication as opposed to a means of exchange. Using blockchains for security allows you to have a secure means of exchange and also to create synthetic currency called Bitcoin, right? Or a cryptocurrency. And as a means of exchange, you're quite good, but we already do that. I mean, electronic transfer of money started with the Bank of America and the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco in 19... I wrote it in my book too. It's 57 or 58. I mean, it's We've been, we've been using electronic exchange of money instead of dragging gold coins and, and paper around since the dawn of the computer age. So the machinery of money going digital started when the first computer started. In fact, the first buyer in the commercial market of a computer, the first ever computer that was bought was bought by the government for the census, the Univac. The first commercial purchase of a computer ever was bought by a bank 
to do what? <laughs> to count money, <laughs> manage money, to do check processing because it was much more efficient than the humans doing it. So adding, and then they use that to become the first bank that moved money between the Federal Reserve and the Bank of America uh, electronically on a communications network between computers. I, I say all that because you're absolutely right. Uh, if you trace the history of money from using energy as a metric, it's always involved the use of energy. Gold requires energy to dig up. No, no kidding, right? In fact, the principal determinant of gold's inherent cost, not its value as, as, as traded in the markets, but its inherent cost, is diesel fuel. Because the price of because it's so because gold is so rare, the or the rare, the the percentage of an ore body of a, that is actually gold is measured in point zero. I think it's 0.01% of a, a high-grade ore is actually gold. So you can do the arithmetic, how many, how many uh, thousands of tons of rock you have to dig up and process using oil-fired machinery. So as a consequence, oil determines the energy uh, of, of cost. The cost of an ounce of gold is determined by energy, dominantly. This is true for all materials and many things in society. This is also true, as has been written infamously about the Bitcoin itself, because its mining system, which is a computer solving uh, a mathematical puzzle, uses lots of electricity. And in no small irony, I calculated uh, the amount of energy used to, to uh, produce an ounce of gold is about the same as the amount of energy used by uh, Bitcoin mining machinery to produce about two or $3,000 worth of Bitcoin. They're very similar. It's kind of ironic. Interesting. I never knew that. Yeah. Now, once you know that, you know right away why you can't replace all currency with Bitcoins because you just can't afford the energy cost. The energy overhead in a Bitcoin is too high to be used in general currency because the maximum velocity you can do an exchange on the blockchain network with Bitcoin is about four to 10 exchanges per, per minute. That's it because of the, 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 the overhead in the computing. Uh, whereas Visa, for example, uh, transacts uh, millions of transactions per per minute in computers, financial transactions. So it, it's not it's not going to happen. So what's the relevant? Well, the relevance is you like everything else in society. Our goal is to take the amount of energy out of each unit of of exchange, whether it's a movement of a human, movement of illuminating a, a light, or illuminating a computer, or a measure of currency exchange. You want less and less physical material and less and less energy. And so that's why paper currency was a revolution in the history of money, because you didn't have to drag gold coins around. You could drag a note, a certified note, backed by gold, and then backed by the claim of a government after the gold standard was destroyed. So, but all those things take less energy and therefore increase the velocity of exchange, which is critical in economies, and, re and reduce the overhead of exchange. But all of them also collaterally, interestingly, make it more difficult to protect the exchange. And security is degraded. When you increase velocity, your security goes away. So you have this sort of Sisyphean battle between improving security, but not degrading velocity. And it all costs energy. You know, if Bitcoin becomes more ubiquitous, I think that one of the um, unintended side effects might be more innovation in energy and in electric, because it will drive that. There'll be a, a good incentive for, for doing that. Well, it's already, Ethereum is uh, about tenfold more energy efficient than, than Bitcoin, famously, which is why they did it. And it's faster. And, and so that, and I, 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 
whether or not a Bitcoin is uh, cryptocurrency, generally speaking, has inherent value, I think the Fed chairman who said this was right. He said, there's no inherent value in, in baseball playing cards. He got quoted after our, our conference for saying this. He said, baseball cards have no inherent value, none whatsoever. The paper on them is worthless. But they have an extraordinarily high value in, in the market in which people care and exchange these baseball cards. And he said, that's normal in economies. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not a store of value. It's a an exchange that markets and economies engage in, but it's not an inherent, it's not a form of in his view, wasn't there and it won't become a form of currency. But setting that aside, whether it's true or not, you're absolutely right that if we reduce the overhead and increase the velocity with which we can create a synthetic currency, which is what a dollar is now, by the way, as you know, the backing with gold is, is, is not real. That's long it, ago. It's pure, <laughs> right. yeah, it's pure synthetic. So the US dollar is a declaration, it's a fiat declaration of value and, and the vote by other countries into whether it has value or not. But whether we use uh, uh, something different, it will have to have very, very, very high velocity and low overhead. So I'll make an easy prediction. That will happen because the direction of computing has not stopped, as you know, and we will keep reducing the energy overhead of those transactions and increase their velocity. And there's, we know what the limit of both are because those are, those are the physics limits. But we know, I know it's not hard to predict those because you can't violate the laws of physics. So we, there's a, you can't get zero energy and we can't go below what's called the noise level of the universe. That is, there's an inherent level of noise in all communications. So that your information has to be, have an energy level to get above the noise in systems. But that's just like saying the same thing in human nature. Communications requires you to get above the noise level. These things are known. Uh, but I, I would happily and easily predict that those who think we won't have cryptocurrencies because they have too high energy overhead, okay, we'll just wait a little while till they have a lower energy overhead. That's not the issue. We could be at an eruption point. And there will, and there will be one. There will be, there will be a sea change. Somebody will come up with a clever way to, to do it that'll have even lower energy overhead. The issue there is, is political and structural. Uh, government control. And, and government control. How do, how do you operate uh, the policies associated with fiat currencies. Can there be shadow currencies? What you know, your your reward points are a cryptocurrency, and they're controlled. They're controlled by fiat by your airline or your credit card company. They can change the value of it arbitrarily, and, and without your control. You've, if you read the fine print, they don't tell you that that value of that mile is going to be permanent forever. That value, they, if they already have changed it arbitrarily, but we happily exchange those things. And they're, so therefore, it's a currency. Well, getting to currencies, I wanted to be sure to ask you about China, and it, which is we, that's an area we're both quite interested in, and what you think this um, uh, government, U.S. government intervention, supposedly very soon, maybe today or maybe after Janet Yellen's visit to China, there'll be more uh, prohibitions about selling chips to China. Right now, you can sell chips to Chinese companies as long as they're not in China. And so that's how things have gotten to, everybody's gotten around it. But now, if if it's totally illegal, what will this do? Is that the government picking winners and losers too? What will that mean for American companies for progress? Is that another possible, and microprocessors are one of the three legs of the stool of, of the boom that you're expecting. Could that, you know, could that leg be, you know, knocked out from under us? by this policy? Are we shooting ourselves in the foot by doing this? 
What do you think, Mark? Uh, I think it's an epic mistake. Uh, I think it's a dangerous provocation. Uh, I'll explain why, but I think you probably share the view about being an epic mistake. And I want to stipulate first that it is true that we are in a uh, economic war with China, of essentially of their choosing, but it's but it's a, it's a mutual economic competition. You can call it an economic war. It's it's normal, but it, the, when the big dogs are in economic combat, it feels like like a form of a cold war because there's a lot at stake. So we are in economic war with China and have been now for let's call it 15 years, the modern 21st century. We also are in a cultural and political war with China, obviously, because their government system is is uh, communist and they're dictatorial. It's a it's a quasi, you know, in the in the correct definition of the word, quasi fascist state. It's not Nazi state. Fascism is the deep collaboration between the government and big industry. So it's a statist economy. We've never been a statist economy. Uh, so what worries me is the path we're going on is going to cause two distortions. It requires us to become a statist economy, Sovietize our economy, in effect, to pick winners and losers, to ma- manipulate markets in ways that that the government deems are important to do for whatever reason. doesn't mean some of the reasons aren't valid. The reasons are valid, but the execution of the policy is really dangerous because it moves us in that direction. Our success as a country has been because of subsidiarity, because of the entrepreneurship, the chaotic nature of our capital markets. These innovations didn't come about because of statist policies. So competing with China, on, on, with China's model, is is not only not, I think it will fail, uh, and it'll be it'll cause damage to both of us. So. The provocation part that worries me is that I does, it's not that I don't think our government should look for sensible policies to ensure that we have fairer trade. There's also a thing as fair trade. <laughs> it's a great word in policy, but it's, there's always distortions. But you want to make it as fair as you can. And as you know, China put their finger on the scale when we were eager to participate in extremely asymmetric policies for a couple decades in terms of how intellectual property was shared, what deals U.S. companies, foreign companies signed work in China. That's a negotiation, right? That can be fixed. There's a lot of ways we can engage that negotiation with counter policies here. But to do what we're doing, to ban something really important to the Chinese economy, just to outright ban it. And it's these are really important things. Microprocessors are the heart of a modern economy. They just are whether they're in your cars, they're in your toasters, they're in your life-saving equipment. They're also in our weapons, theirs and ours, but they're in everything else in society. It, and we are ahead. So let's just be clear, the West and the United States in particular on, on merge, next generation microprocessors, no one is close. The Chinese are not. They're ahead of us in other things, but on that, they're not. Uh, it's, it's really provocative. It's much more provocative than Trump's steel tariffs. Much, much more so. I mean, tariff- That was just money. That's just money. And it distorts markets because everybody has tariffs. And it's a negotiating tactic. And as I told my conservative friends, they've forgotten that Ronald Reagan, the icon of free markets, not only imposed tariffs on Japanese automobiles and motorcycles, he did it, the motorcycles first. He picked a targeted tariff on a, to send a signal to Japan, that we're serious here. He put, I think it was a 300% tariff, a huge tariff. I forgot the, it was huge. 
on Japanese motorcycles because they were destroying Harley-Davidson. He wanted to save Harley-Davidson. This is a finger on the scale, right? And he gave a speech, and he said in the speech, and I remember the exact quote because you can find it on, on the magic Google machine still. Uh, if this sounds like protectionism, it is. Reagan said that. Now, what happened because of that was that it didn't impose tariffs on all Japanese cars. The Japanese looked at it and said, hmm. They had a negotiation, and the very first Japanese automobile manufacturing plant was built two years later in Ohio uh, by Honda, and then Toyota followed. But it ended up in a rapprochement and a realpolitik, to seal another phrase from the Cold War era. So we, we, we're we doing provocations instead of rapprochements and, and, and a realpolitik, acknowledging China is expressing uh, belligerence in the global markets. Well, yeah, duh. <laughs> and so are we. And that's the way, the nature of international politics. But boy, it sure worries me. And it, yes, it takes markets away from us. And yes, we should be cautious. We, we already have uh, what are called ITAR laws, as you know, laws that pr prohibit the export of military, military signi militarily significant technologies. So if you can uh, clear ITAR export, you can export your technology. And so maybe... One solution would be not to ban something, but to look to the Commerce Department and say, could we tight, tighten up ITAR? Could we, could we look at, you know, ITAR was put in place during the Cold War. Can we, can we make it a little more restrictive? Can we expand it a little bit? That would send a message to China. And now they could respond by saying, well, we'll develop our own industry. Well, you go, girls. You develop your own. It's okay for that particular thing. We're not going to export that particular thing. But these blanket prohibitions man, it's not just they take money away from our businesses to sell a product. They're provocative. And what would you do if you're China? I mean, again, I'm not saying this to be pro-Chinese. You, you, If you're being smart, you've gained this. You know, this is something I'll give credit again to Newt Gingrich for saying. As he said when he was in politics, active in it, he got a lot of proposals of things. We should do this, okay? Whatever the this is. His hit his question, which comes from, I think it comes from... Uh, Political, it may come from, uh, well, anyways, ancient political theory. Whenever you say we should do this, you should always immediately ask, ask this question. And then what? What happens after you do that? What, what are you going to, they will, the counterparty will respond, what are you going to do when they respond? So what could China do? We're going to ban, what could they ban? Because they can't, well, Let's just use something you and I have talked about, you're intimately familiar with. What, if China, what has China done? Well, they, they not only control rare earths, which are utterly critical to many modern technology products. They have 90% global market share in rare earths. They could- And pharmaceuticals. And pharmaceuticals. So they could, they could say, well, you know, this class of pharmaceuticals, we're just going not going to export to Europe and the United States anymore. Or these rare earth elements, they're, you know, the neodymium that you need for all your, your motors and magnets and your wind turbines and your cars, your electronic stuff. The prices, we just add a zero to the price. Now, why not? You can or do we'll it make fentanyl precursors yeah. free. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can get as a response, both overtly and, and, and they do have market power too. It's not like we have, the, we're not the only market maker in some products and services. So, I, I mean, I gave the Reagan example because you pick something to send the message. So motorcycles were important, but they're de minimis in the great exchange between Japan and China and America at that time. So what you could pick is a de minimis product that was iconic in that domain. And then back channel, you engage in negotiations. We negotiate with real enemies, not just political. I mean, negotiations always happen and they happen frequently back channel. Now, maybe... 
maybe this administration is doing what I just described. Maybe they're doing back channel at the same time. Uh, color me a cynic to say that I don't smell or suspect as much right now, but it could be. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know, but I'm worried about it. I think industrial policy, Chinese style is bad for America and it won't work. Innovation doesn't work that way. The Chinese know this and that's why they unleashed their, their entrepreneurs for 20 years and they've reined them in now to their detriment. It's not going to go as well, but it's obviously a political decision on their part. I would say we should look at that and say, that's not going to work out so well for you. Why would we copy that? I mean, I mean, come on. It's silly. It's silly. But no, I think that's a great note to end on. I was going to ask you what policymakers shouldn't do. So I think you've said a few things that, that definitely fit in that uh, category. But I hope that our listeners will now run and get your book and read it. I think it's just really, as I said, I love the figures in it as well and the explanation, the framework to the things that you were saying. It, it really gave me much more insight. And that's, that. I think, what everybody's looking for. So the name of the book is The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom in parentheses, unless we do something stupid, and a roaring 20, 2020s. And how can people follow you, Mark? Are you on Twitter or where can they find you to, to for your your latest? Well, and, and thank you again for promoting the book. And as an aside, the audiobook does not have a dog barking in the background. So that's a plus. Oh, Those... well, I don't think that's good then. <laughs> <laughs> and not because we, we, we euthanize the dog, but because that's how... I, I have a website, of course, tech-pundit.com, where all the canon of my free public writing is is there. And I am on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I, you know, like you, uh, am a, a mildly active. I'm not an obsessive user, but I find them very good platforms for sharing ideas and finding ideas. And uh, the book, obviously, is at the usual Amazon and bookstores. It's still, it's still in circulation, even though it's about a year old now. It's it, it's not, I think it's timeless for at least five years because all the forecasts I make are about Up things. Up till 2029. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're <laughs> unfolding now. And I'm happy right. to say that some of the forecasts that I made, like what AI is going to do, and, and about uh, flying cars, flying, flying drones, that I predicted a year ago, was I wrote that a year before that, are now unfolding as we speak. These, these, uh, the FAA is actually looking at certification of Lilium, which is an air taxi company. Uh, and they'll probably get certification, so they'll actually be an air taxi That'll be electrically powered for those who are infatuated with lithium batteries for airplanes. So these, these. Uh, so anyway, my stuff is there. There's also Dr. Google. You put my name in with Mark P. If you do it without the P, you get a British novelist who's arguably been more successful writing novels than I am in writing nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for joining us. And thank you to all the people here behind the scenes who make EconView possible, especially our producer, Sam Fu. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, econview.com. Don't miss our new China report. And if you can, support us on Substack. <music>